thank you for this evening. We thank you for each person that's here and the rain that's due. And we ask that you cover us as this rain falls, Lord, the various individuals that are sick, that you will touch their, their lives. And Lord, we ask that you guide and lead us and your Holy Spirit teaches us tonight through this Bible study in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 3. We finished through 6. I think I'm going to go ahead and read from verse 1 just so we get our context of this chapter. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some other epistles of condemnation, commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be in the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who has also made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraved in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of the condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had not glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that of the re that remained is glorious. Seeing then that you have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look, unto, look to the end of that which was abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remains the same veil, untaken away by the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall return to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as the Spirit of the Lord. All right, so we look at this, and Paul was trying, you know, starting to, started this chapter with, as a refresher, because it's been three weeks, uh, that, you know, saying, do we need to make condemnation, commendation to ourselves, or do we need somebody to introduce you? And you got to remember, Paul is the founder of this church, <laughs> and yet, every time he's talking about them, he has to, you know, be rebuilding his I'm, I'm an apostle. I'm the, I'm the one that started this church. And, he's, and it started with, you know, do, I, do we have to get letters? He goes, but no, you are our letter. You, you know, what has happened in your church is our commendation. You know, we, we've seen you grow. And then he goes that God is the one that is able to minister. And then he said, you know, verse 6 where we left off last week, you know, they're ministers of the, not of the letter of the law, but the spirit. For the letter kills and the spirit gives life. 
And this is what I've said so often. You know, when we try to put law on people, all it does is make people rebel and, and push away from God in most cases. Now, the law is good. Okay, we don't want to ever make it sound like the law is bad. The law is good. It tells us that we are sinners. But the law will never give anybody life and eternal life. It will only condemn. It kills. It makes people understand. And this is something that's important for us. It's important for us, especially when we're talking to people who don't understand God and his righteousness, to show them that you are a sinner. And this is why you're a sinner. God says, don't steal. He says, don't lie. He says, don't commit adultery. Don't have any other gods before him. And all the, you know, just the Ten Commandments that we know of, which he's going to spend a little bit of time on. But, you know, all the other commandments of God show us that we are sinners. And he says the, the law kills, the law condemns, but the Spirit of God gives life. God's grace, his mercy, gives us that opportunity to grow and be accepted by God. And then verse 7 it says, But if the ministrations of death, the law, written and engraved in stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away with? So he's saying there was glory in the, in the, in the, in the law. And there is glory in the law there because that's what God wants. And this reference that they're making to Moses, I don't remember if you remember the story, but Exodus 34, Starting at verse 29, uh, where, the, where the story comes in, but I just want to reference uh, Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, is where God gives his name to Moses. And I love the, the name that God gives. And verse 6 says, And the Lord passed by and proclaimed the, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. This was the name that God gives Moses. As he, and if you remember the story, Moses asked to, be, to see God. And God says, no, you can't see me. He put him in the cleft of the rock. He covered him. He walked by, saw the backside, and he declared his name. The God that gives mercy, the God that gives grace, but who is also judgment for those who reject that grace. And Moses spends time up there with God, and in verse, uh, verse 29 of Exodus 34, and it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of the testimony of Moses in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, Moses knew not that his skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And Moses called him to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned un unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children, came, children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them a commandments, commandment, all, all the Lord had spoken of him on, in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he, he put a veil on his face, and when Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out, and he came out and spoke unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face, 
again until he went to speak with him. So this is a picture. Moses has spent 40, actually 80 days on, the, on Mount Sinai. He spent 40 days on Mount Sinai, came down, and if you remember, the people were worshiping the golden calf, and he got so mad, he smashed the, smashed the tablets, he, they crushed, he, had a, he crushed the golden calf, he ended up fine powder, put it in the, in the water and made them drink, drink, drink that. Then he went, after 40 days up in the Mount Sinai, and he did these, these items of judgment, he went back up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and got the, new, got the next uh, stone tablets. And he comes down, and it, you know, after that long, it said his face literally shone. And when we read glory, glory in the Hebrew oftentimes means a brilliance and a shining. And so we see here that Moses literally reflected God in a, in a very special way. And I don't know what it would be like to see a face that shines. <laughs> now, we talk about somebody being so happy that they're, that they're beaming, but I don't think that's exactly what they're saying here. It literally means that his face shone. He had the presence of God, the glory of God, and it has been said that Moses had the opportunity to talk with God. You know, he, he's one of the special characters that God literally spent time talking with. And he saw something that nobody else has seen, you know, the backside of God, other than the angels. But as far as humans go, no other human that has been recorded saw God. And, you know, the New Testament, they saw Jesus who says, I am the Father and one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But he had his glory veiled in humanity. And Moses actually saw whatever it was that he got to see. God says, it's my backside. You can't see my front side or you'll die. And he came back off the mountain. And people were a little bit afraid of him. It's like, you know, you're shining, Moses. Uh, what, what happened up there? And Moses put a veil on his face and he communicated with them. And that's what Paul is referring to in this section. If the law, which is going to be ended, was glorious, how much more, and it's going to be done away with. And he's going, how much more will God's spirit? And, you know, and we just always want to be careful that we don't ever try to make the law not important as Christians. You know, we are not under the law. We are not bound by the law. But the law does show us what God wants us to do. And be, by obeying the law, we're not going to earn heaven. We're not going to, you know, we're not, none of this stuff. But obedience to the law has rewards. And what will God the Father look like to us when we're in heaven? I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't tell us. It really doesn't tell us because about the only thing we've, see is some form of shining being is about the only thing that we ever get to know. Now, once we have a spiritual body, we will be able to look at God at whatever form that takes uh, because he's going to dwell with us. He'll be the light. He'll be light of the new heaven and earth. You know, maybe he's still a shining, <laughs> shining That's thing. It's hard to understand. You know, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But I think in most of that, it wasn't, he wasn't saying the physical likeness of the Father. I believe he was saying the personality and who, who the Father is. Uh, you know, because sometimes 
if you know a family well enough, sometimes you can tell the, the child of that family just because of mannerisms and you know, they may not even look like their, their parents, but you just know the things they say, the things they do, the way they behave can sometimes tell you, uh, you're, you're a chip off your father, you know, you know, off the block, you know, you're, I can tell you don't necessarily look like your dad, but your personality, the way you, the way you respond to things. And I think that's what Jesus was saying when he said, when you've seen the father, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. I'm going to show you his love. I'm going to show you his mercy. I'm going to show you his grace. I'm going to show you his holiness and righteousness, you know, when he drives the money changers out of the temple. You know, you've made my father's house a den of thieves and he chases them out. I think he was also showing them God. Okay, so I think that's what he means when he says, you know, not literally, you've seen me, you've seen the father, we look, we look like twins. I think it literally was his personality. I've shown you the love, I've shown you everything about him, and because you've seen me, you now know when you see the father, you will see the same, same aspect. Heaven will retain his earthly body with all the scars. If everything it seems to tell us that he will re maintain his scars in heaven, at least at the point when he comes forward to take the scroll. Because the description of him and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world came forward. And you know, so it indicates to us, to most people, that he will, that Jesus bears the scars in heaven for what it cost to get us to, to heaven. Uh, again, there's no hard fact on that other than we see him in heaven with scars uh, when he takes the scroll. What does he look like? Yeah, we don't really know. The, the disciples didn't recognize him at first when he first resurrected. The disciples on the road to Emmaus never didn't recognize him until he broke bread or said a prayer or whatever it was that when he when he broke the bread, the way he did it, or the prayer he said when he did it, all of a sudden, oh, it's the Lord. And as soon as they recognized that, he disappeared. And there is a little description when he comes at the end of the millennium and the fourth and everything. There is there, but it shows him in his glory and his power with the sword coming out of his mouth. It doesn't really talk about the scars at that point. Uh, because there is that transition. When Jesus comes forward, and remember, there's a half hour of silence in heaven, and it's a very pregnant pause. I and others believe that that is when everything about Jesus changes. He changes from the sacrificed lamb, the meek and mild lamb, to the Lion of Judah. <laughs> and he's, you know, at that point he takes on the kingship. So it could, you know, and this is why it's hard. We don't, we're not told enough about what it is. We know that he bore his scars in his resurrected body. We know that we see him, you know, as he gets ready to take the scrolls, the scroll and break the seals, that he appears as a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. I personally believe he's going to hold the scars for all of eternity because it is the price he paid for us to be there. Now, that's just a personal belief and it's not, there's nothing strong about it, you know, other than the last statement, he's a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Moses sees God, probably saw Jesus rather than the Father because, the, you know, the Father is spirit, you know, but it does also indicate that maybe he saw something we don't know because Jesus is the one that men see. 
Now, and we've talked about this. There's all kinds of pictures of Jesus appearing to men in the Old Testament. Uh, Joshua, you know, just before they're getting ready to go in the land, they sees the angel of the Lord challenging him and tells him to be of good courage and that God is with them and take, tells him to, you know, to, you know, that he is the one. And because he goes, Who's, whose side are you on? He goes, I'm not on anybody's side. <laughs> You're going to be on my side. Uh, you know, we see the fourth man in the fire, you know, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, they, and King Nebuchadnezzar says it looks like the Son of God. Now, I don't know how he knew what the Son of God was, but he saw something that was just so spectacular that he didn't know what it was. We see Jacob wrestling with the, with the angel of the Lord, which is, you know, Jesus. And he, you know, Jesus, you know, finally at the end just touches the side of his, of his hip, takes it out of joint, and, and Jacob walks for the rest of his life with, his, with, his, with a damaged leg and limping. We see all kinds of places where, so Moses most likely saw Jesus on the backside, but, you know, that also doesn't make sense because they saw the face. So we also can say maybe Moses did see something that we can't even, can't even fathom. And what will we see? It says he sits on the, on the throne, so there's something there. <laughs> He's got a backside to sit on. Yeah, he's got he's got a backside that Moses saw, and he gets to sit he gets to sit on the throne. So what will we see? We don't know. And once we have a spiritual body, you know, and a glorified body, what will we see? A lot differently than we do now. Uh, everything about the description of heaven, the new heaven and the earth, is just you know glorious to the point where most people say that uh, you know. Everything in heaven is greater than it is here. The colors are greater. The smells are going to be greater. Those who've had their visions, that's how they come back. I can't describe the colors. They're just deeper. And I really do believe that that's probably true. I'm not necessarily true in believing that they went to heaven. But everything about it seems to say it's just more. You know, we get to walk on streets of gold. And I don't know if they're going to be literal gold or, or not, but something that appeared to them as gold. Uh, and who knows what they saw, you know, because they're sticking with whatever they understood things as. And, uh, you know, and I can't imagine what these guys went through when they were trying to see the future and try to describe things that makes no sense to them. And so, but he says here that Moses shown because of the glory of God, the brightness, the brilliance of God. Verse 8, how then shall the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? So in other words, he says, the Spirit, which is God, should be just as glorious or more so than the law. And this is Paul's point. The law is good, the law, it, but the law brings death, and the law is going to be done away with. If it was glorious, and it was, then the things that the Spirit does are going to be greater. And you know, this is something I love because hopefully you've experienced sometime when you just spend time in God's Word or prayer, and just the glory of God comes upon you. you know, and maybe not as shiny as this, but you just you know that you're in God's presence. And there's just a feel and a desire of what follows on that. And, you know, one of the greatest things I love is to just be studying and get so excited to be with God. To, be, to spend some time in prayer and see 
and feel God. Not that we want to be blessed necessarily by feelings. Because the problem with feelings are, feelings tend to lie to us. <laughs> you know, uh, well, I just don't feel like I'm saved. Well, it really doesn't matter whether I feel like I'm saved or not. If I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I am saved whether I feel like it or not. Okay? If, if I am truly trusting in God, he loves me, even if I'm not. Even, you know, God loves the world. Whether they feel like he loves them or not is irrelevant. He says he loves them. And this is what's important for us to do is get away from feeling so much. I mean, I see it all the time. Well, I just don't feel like serving God or I don't feel like he's loving me or I don't feel like he's, he's that I'm saved. We need to get into the, into the word and say, God, you've given me the facts. You know, if I've accepted Jesus Christ as my savior, I'm saved. Doesn't matter whether I feel like it doesn't matter whether I'm even acting like it, if, it, if it's true. Now, if I don't act like it and consistently don't act like it, then I may have to say, am I really his? But as long as I know I'm his child, it doesn't matter what I feel. You know, I am loved, even when I don't feel like I'm loved. And this is why I keep coming back to, you know, God promises that all things work together for good, and he promises he's sovereign and in control. So if I'm looking at my life and it's out of control and it doesn't look good, my feelings are lying to me and I need to come back to the facts. God is in control and it's going to be for good. And this is why it's important for us to really grab hold of the facts of the word. And there's a lot of Christians that do their entire life on feelings. Well, today I feel like I'm saved, so I'm going to serve God. Well, this morning I feel miserable. I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I'm saved. I'm just going to be wallowing around in the in the mud and the muck for a while because I just don't feel like it. And you know we've got to be careful about this. I've seen people, you know, come to church and there's certain churches that they'll have hour hours long praise sessions, and people will leap. Wow, don't you just feel God? Okay, that's wonderful. What about the, the temptation that, you, that you're going to face, the, the, that the message that you were supposed to hear was going to keep you out of? You know, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with feeling good about God. Just don't let it run your life. Because if you let it run your life and make your decisions, you're going to be pretty miserable because you're, you're up and down depending on how you feel. You know, I feel like I should love this person or I don't feel I should love this person. God says love them. <laughs> It doesn't matter whether I feel like loving them. It doesn't matter whether I feel like forgiving them. It doesn't matter whether I feel like being nice to them. God says, do those things. And we say, okay, God, I'm going to stand on your truth. The truth shall set you free. And one of the things it sets us free of is the emotions. The emotions, the up and down of emotions. I can just stay stable. God, you said this. I'm going, to, I'm going to stand on the rock of what you say. When I feel good, great. When I don't feel good, great. I'm still on the rock. And uh, it keeps us from those high highs and low lows because we just say, I'm going to stand on it. Verse 8. For if the ministrations of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. And again, he's bringing this whole thing. The law brought the, the law was glorious, okay? And this is why we want, you know, a lot of people go, well, Paul got rid, you know, told us not to worry about the law and all this. And he says we're not bound by the law. 
Not that we forget the law. He says the law had glory. It was condemnation and it would bring death, but it was glorious and God would use it to bring people to him. And that's all it was supposed to do. You know, this is what my standards are. You failed. <laughs> Come to me. And we talk about this oftentimes. When we're witnessing to people, part of the fact is we need to get them lost before we can get them saved. And, you know, and this is important because if people don't think they need God, they're not going to turn to him. You know, how, you know, and we've talked about this. You know, how, do you, how do you think you're going to get, well, I just have to be a good person. Well, how good is good? Well, you know, I'm better than most. You know, the good news for us is it makes it easy is that God doesn't grade on a curve. The bad news for them is God doesn't grade on a curve. It's not like, well, I'm better than 50% of the people I'm going to heaven. God says, nope, I have a different standard. You have to be perfect. So by God's standard, no human being will go to heaven without him because his standard is perfection and everybody falls short of perfection. And this is what we've got to convince people of. You know, God's standard is perfection. If you sin, and you'd have, you have failed. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we need to convince people, number one, what sin is. And that's getting harder and harder in our day and age where people are going, well, you know, there's no real standard. If I think it's bad, it's bad. If I think it's good, it's good. And, you know, and we come back to God. We come back to God and we try to show them this is the standard. You know, and as long as people aren't accepting God's standard, anything goes. And that's one of the reasons Satan is working hard to discredit the Bible. Very hard. You know, we look at it and it says God, God says adultery is sin, fornication is sin, homosexuality is sin, lying is sin. And, they go, and the world will go, says who? Says God, the God of the universe that created us. And, you know, it's, sometimes it's the biggest battle that we have. When Paul was preaching to the Gentiles, his biggest battle was to get them to understand who God is. You know, and we have that same problem nowadays. You know, and it's very important sometimes when we say the word God, we don't know necessarily what that individual's thinking. In our, in our older generation, you know, before the, in the 50s and 60s and earlier, when you said the word God, everybody immediately thought of the God of, the, of our Bible. Now you say God and they might be thinking Allah or Krishna or you know, any number of gods out there. There's, there's people at the church when you say God, they're, they're thinking of Thor and Odin. I'm not sure if you guys even know who Thor and Odin are. They're the Norse gods. Okay. So we need to, number one, make sure that people are understanding who God is. What is his standard? and be able to bring them in. And this is what Paul's saying. The law had glory, even though it brought condemnation, but righteousness that God gives us is true glory, and it doesn't disappear. Verse 10 says, For even that which was made glorious, for even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excels. He says the law had glory, but there but it is nothing compared to the glory that is above it. And have you ever seen a light? You know, we see a light, you know, let's say, let's say you have a light bulb and it's making all kinds of light in the dark. But when the sun comes out, you know, that light bulb doesn't necessarily give you any light. 
You know, a street light, you know, at nighttime gives you a lot of light. But if the street light is on during the daytime, the only way you know that it's even lit is to look up at it <laughs> and see that it's lit because it's not making any light. And that's what he's saying here. When the exceeding glory comes, the other one is eclipsed. And, you know, this is the wonderful thing that he's looking at. And Paul is reiterating again and again that there is value in the law. Verse 11, for that which is done away with was glorious, much more that which remained is glorious. Seeing then that we have this hope, we use great plainness of speech. Paul was saying, you know, we use plainness. Jesus said, you come to me as a little child with the faith of a child. And this is the wonderful thing about the gospel message. It is simple. Yeah. And the sad thing is, is how many people complicate it. They complicate the gospel. And the gospel, as I've said so many times, is really simple. It has to be said in love and, and, and preciousness, but the first point is we're sinners. And because we're sinners, we deserve punishment, and that punishment is hell. The good news is Jesus died for our sins, and, and those who call upon his name shall be saved. But that takes a lot of simplicity and faith to believe. Because when you tell that to somebody, their first thing is, well, I'm not really that bad. You know, well, compared to who? You know, compared to who? And you know the amazing thing is anytime somebody says, I'm not that bad, and you kind of put them down compared to who, they always pick people that are worse than them. Okay? They're never going to pick a, a Mother Teresa or you know, the, the pastor who's you know, leading their church or the person who's generally good. They always pick the drunk, in the, you know, the drunk that's falling down or, or the murderer or the rapist. You know, well, I'm better than those guys. Well, of course you are from human standards. But you, don't, you fall short of these other people who know that they fall short of God's standard. You know, and in our world, we have too many people that compare. Well, you know, I'm hoping that I'm good enough to get to heaven. Well, the simple answer is, no, you're not. You know, and people don't like that. You know, the answer is simple. When somebody says, well, I hope I'm good enough to get to heaven, I tell you, uh, your answer is very simple, you're not. And I go, what do you mean? I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Well, yeah, but you're not perfect. Well, nobody's perfect. That's why we need Jesus. And this is, this is the whole process that we go into, you know, because the law will cause comparison. And the Pharisees in Jesus' day were doing this all the time. You know, we've kept the law. We keep it better than everybody else, at least their version of the law. You know, the, the, their version of the law and all the loopholes they put in it so that they could keep the law. Uh, you know, and they're going, well, look, we do really good. And, but they still weren't perfect. And this is what Paul is going on. And he talks about plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil on his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end that, of that which was abolished. He says, they could not even look at his glory. It's kind of this whole point. Moses saw God. And God was reflected from him. Have you ever just known that somebody was a Christian just because you saw something about them that was glorious? You may not have been shining, literally, 
But you, there, there are just some people that when you look at them, you say, this person is a Christian. You know, they may not even, you may not even talk to them yet. You go, there's, that person is a Christian. And then there's people that you think are Christians, and there's some that you wonder about, and then there's some you just know. You know, their, their whole demeanor, everything about them makes you really wonder. And sometimes when they claim to be a Christian, you're going, well. <laughs> and then there's just those that, you know, you look and you see God coming out of them. Maybe not literal glory, but you see God's presence. You at least feel God's presence. You can go, That's, that person's a Christian. That person knows God. Why, do that, why does that happen? Because they've got God so much in them, they're spending so much time with God that he is radiating out of them. And he has a message that works for them to say, yes, this person is in touch with God. They know God and the spirit just pours out. And these people are fun to be around. You know, you just go, wow. You may not agree with them with every theological point they have and everything that they believe, but you know that they belong to God. They're a child. One of the greatest things I've had on, on times when I've done travels is to go to a church and just know that you're, you're with family. You know, you're, you're thousands of miles from home and you go, this is family. It is, this is family. Look at, look at all these people. You feel that relationship. And again, we want to stay away from feelings, but at the same time, God uses those feelings to give us an encouragement at times. And we want to be careful because feelings, again, can lie to us. You can, somebody can make you think that they're a Christian by the way they're walking, and so feelings have to be careful. Or, you know, well, I just don't think that person's a Christian. Well, that's kind of irrelevant. You know, if God is in their heart, what we think is not relevant, and we've got to be careful of judging others as we go along as well. But, you know, we look at somebody's life and say, does this person show forth God? And I've said, if I'm going to err on that side, if they, don't, if, I, if they don't act like they're a Christian, I'm going to treat them more like they're not a Christian and give them the gospel message as often as possible. If I see God in them, I'm going, okay, good, I'm going to believe that. You know, you're generally trying to love, you're growing. That's one thing over time you go, okay, this person isn't the same as when they were when I first saw them. Look at where they've grown. And that's one thing I love about what God is doing in our church. There are so many people that are growing by leaps and bounds with God, and it's fun just watching those lives change. You know, when people go, wow, you know, I was able to be kind to this person, and I wouldn't have done that before. Yeah. That's one of the great things. When somebody can be kind and loving to somebody, that, and it is different than the way, you know, the way they were a year ago or something, it's a wonderful thing to see, the growth. And every one of us should be seeing ourselves get closer to God with each passing, well, day, but we're not going to analyze our life by the day, you know, by month and year. And we look back and say, you know, a year ago, I would not have been calm around this person, or I would not have been calm in this situation. You know, we look at people like, again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, those guys were young teenagers when they were taken into captivity. Everybody would have excused them if they had not followed God. They would have been excused. Well, they're just young. And yet they stood for God in spite of the possibility of dying. And you know, their answer to Nebuchadnezzar was, our God is fully able to deliver us from your hand, but whether he does or doesn't, we will not bow to your God. What strength from young teenagers? You know, 
And sometimes we go, God, you know, yeah, I'm just young. I don't, 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 don't hold me accountable. And God says, but you've got me in you. Yeah. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And we need to be able to really realize that sometimes. When we're in a hard place, we take what we know about the scriptures and we ask God, give us the strength. Come out of us. Now, we look at the, the hiding place with Corey Tenboom and her sister Betsy. You know, Corey's the one that lived and gets all the praise and everything, but Betsy was the strong one even though physically she was weak. You know, she's going, you know, she kept telling Corey, you've got, to, you've got to thank God, you've got to bless God for all these bad things that are happening to us. You still have to bless God. You have to give God the glory. She had the picture of the disciples. You know, if we suffered, thank God, God found us worthy of suffering. And I keep bringing this up because I really think we're at the end of the day, getting close to the end of the days, where if we don't change our mind towards suffering, we're going to be hurting. If we think that because we suffer, everything's bad, when we go through hardship, it, you know, it should be, God, thank you, you found me worthy of, of lifting up your, your name by suffering, just as the disciples did. We're going to honor God, and we're going to get beat. We're going to get thrown into prison. We're going to be scourged. And their answers were, after each one of those things, thank God that we were worthy of suffering. I think Job finally probably came to that place, you know, after he struggled for a while. He comes out of it and says, thank you, God, that I was worthy of that suffering. We need to look at just that. When we suffer, God is saying, I think you're strong enough to go through it. Now, we don't always successfully go through it. <laughs> but he's starting out with, You've got the opportunity. You've grown enough that you should be able to do this. And if we come out with the right attitude, that God, thank you. <laughs> you know, and again, as I say so often, it's not thank you for the pain. It's not thank you, you know, God, you know, I just can't wait. God, God, give me as much pain as you can. No, that's not our attitude. Okay, You've got some other problems if you're looking at that, <laughs> that, uh, that part of it. But it really comes down to God, thank you that you have found me worthy. Help me get through all of this and see the blessing that's going to come out of this. Whether it's a blessing of watching somebody else grow through what we do, whether it's the blessing of getting empathy for other people that go through things, whether it's just the, the blessing of proving that I'm his child and, and he loves me enough to let, me, let this be proved. We don't know all of why he's letting us suffer at times. All we know is when we get to heaven, he'll show us the, the value of our suffering and that there's rewards for the suffering. And again, so many times I've said there's, it might just be for somebody else to see you be faithful during the suffering. They want your faithfulness and they get encouraged because of your faithfulness. And that doesn't necessarily mean bad for us. God will say he'll reward us in heaven for it. But how many times have you watched somebody who's a Christian go through something hard and it encourages you? You watch them go through something and they don't fail, they don't flounder, and you go, wow, God, I want to be like them. I want to be like them because they're showing you forth. We read the biographies that I keep encouraging us to read, and we see these people go through trials, go through hardships. And sometimes they fail, but, and sometimes they pass them, and it gives us the encouragement that, God still loved them. He's going to love us. Even when we fail, he still loves us. And that's the good news. Even when we fail, God says, you're still my child. He doesn't disown us. 
because we failed, and we'd be in trouble if God disowned us when we fail. They, you know, because I fail so much that I would have been disowned so many times it wouldn't have been, you know, not worth anything. God loves us and says, "All right, you failed this time. Let's get you ready for the next test." And He keeps keeps running those tests through us. Then He says in verse thirteen. And not as Moses, which put a veil on his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look at to the end that was abolished, but their minds were blinded, for until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. And basically he's saying, and we all have experienced this at some point. If you remember back before you got saved and you tried to read the Bible, you hear it all the time from people who aren't, well, the Bible just doesn't make any sense. Well, you know what? It doesn't make sense because you're in the flesh and the Bible is, is a spiritual book. And it will never make sense to a lost person. All we can do is quote the pertinent verses and let the Spirit move in their heart to make, make it come alive. And then when somebody gets saved, you, know, you hear it so often. I never could read the Bible, and now I read it, and everything just makes sense. It, you know, it jumps off the page, and they see the life. The Bible, ultimately, even though it's physical book with physical words, the words do not help people. It's the Spirit of God behind the words. And, you know, this is something we keep saying. How many times have you read the Bible through, and all of a sudden... And I love this. I love to play this game. You know, I'm reading along and you know, I read something that I have never seen before. And this is after 40 years of studying and all of a sudden this thing will jump off the page and say, you know, and I just love to have fun with God. I go, God, when did you put that verse in there? It wasn't there the last 40 years. You know, and I know that it was and God knows that I know that it is. But it's, it jumped off the page and became alive. And it happens every single time I read. There's these things that jump off the page, and I notice things that I have never seen in all the study. And I've studied most every book. Not, you know, not just read the books, but I've studied the books, and still things jump off the page that have never been noticed. It's a book that brings life, because it is a spiritual book. The words themselves are great. You know, a lot of philosophers will look at the words and come up with all kinds of wonderful things. But the real life of the book comes from the Spirit. When the Spirit opens it up and he says, this is what was written. And it's so important because remember when we did the How to Study the Bible course, what was the very thing I said? The most important tool for studying the Bible is prayer and the Holy Spirit. If you have those two, you can get by without any other book out there, any other study aid. And I'm not uh, saying that those study aids are worthless. They're, they have great value. But the Spirit's interpretation is more important than anything else that you can look up. Because when you're looking up anything else, man wrote those books. And they are as good as they are. And if you're looking at a commentary, every commentary has bad commentary in it no matter how good the theologian is who wrote it. There's always things in there that just aren't correct because they're human. And you've got to remember, commentary is not infallible. And it's one of the reasons, as I've said, I'm not a big fan of Bibles with commentary in them because people immediately, well, I don't understand this, they drop right down to the commentary. 
instead of letting the Holy Spirit speak to them and try to explain what, it, what it's talking about, they go straight down to commentary and get led astray a lot of times. And a lot of times the commentary is good. Don't get me wrong. There's some good commentary in the Bible, but there's a lot of bad commentary as well. Uh, every one of the commentaries in my office have good and bad sections in them. And it's different depending on which, which author you, you're looking at. And again, I don't use a lot of commentary myself. I, don't, I want the Holy Spirit to talk to me and tell me, what does this mean? Scripture interprets scripture. And you, know, you read the stories I just brought out. You know, he's talking about Moses. Well, let's go back to the story of Moses like we did and say, what happened during this story? Because if we don't understand what happened on that reference, it's hard to understand what he's talking about. You know, this was the picture. Now let's build upon that picture. And we want to keep these things in mind. Let the Spirit teach you before you start looking for other sources of interpretation. And this is why I tell everybody, I don't want people to believe something just because I say it. Be good Bereans. Paul braised the Bereans because they searched the scriptures to prove what he said. And he wrote a large chunk of the New Testament, and he's saying, I like what they're doing. They're going back to the Old Testament to make sure that what I'm saying is valid. And if Paul can say that, then every other teacher out there can say that, needs to say the same thing. Go check it out. Go check the scriptures and not what other people say. Because I tell you, I, it's, it's fun at times to just talk to people that disagree with me. I love to, I love to last week I had the pastor that spent the day with me and he, I, he and I talked about all kinds of doctrines that I would never talk to anybody else about and we didn't agree on most of them. <laughs> but it was just fun because we both gave why we believe what we believe and neither one of us were like, okay, you gotta believe what I believe. And I've shared with everybody in this church, I don't want everybody to believe what I believe. I want you to believe what God is teaching you. Now I have reasons why I believe what I believe and I will give you all the reasons. And if you disagree with me, praise God, just make sure you know why you believe what you believe. We can be fed bad information so easy. And we've got to be careful because our mind can retain bad information. And so often we have people who especially have been raised in a church were taught wrong as a child. And the saddest thing is that most churches put their most inexperienced people with the word of God to teach the children. And you can come up with being teaching these children some really weird stuff. And a child believes it. Teacher told me that. It's true. They may believe it for the rest of their life unless they finally get a teacher who teaches them something different. And this is the really sad thing. I have always believed that the best teachers in a church should be teaching the children. Why? Because adults basically can think for themselves. If you put an inexperienced teacher in them, then you get what Gary was talking about. You get a little bit of, hold it now, I don't really think about that. What about this verse? What about this verse? And all of a sudden you get some discussion in there and some correction. But adults tend to be able to think for themselves a bit more. Those children pretty much are going to believe what you're told them. And I even heard one time, you know, God doesn't like you when you do that. Well, I'm sorry, God loves you all the time. Do not be telling those kids that God doesn't like you because that's going to make them afraid of God. Now, God doesn't like their action, and if you say that, God doesn't like what you are doing, but he loves you. 
And that's hard for people to understand the difference of. The world does not understand that difference. We've talked about that. Christians talk all the time about God hates the sin but loves the person. And we as his people are supposed to hate the sin and love the person. And we have a hard time doing splitting it up. The world cannot split them up because you are what you do. You know, you're not somebody who steals. You are a thief and you are defined as a thief. And because you are a thief, you will never be trusted because that is who you are as far as the world's concerned. You're not somebody that has a drinking problem that gets drunk. You are that drunk and you cannot, and they cannot separate the two. And when we talk as Christians about separating the two, the world does not understand what we're talking about. And this is the thing about us. When we go out as Christians, we're talking spiritual. They're, they're talking and hearing world. And we have a communication gap. We really do. We are talking two different languages most of the time. Now, we can usually understand the world because we have enough flesh in us to understand where they're coming from and what they believe. We need to be able to communicate to the world using the world's language to a degree. Now, will they fully understand spiritual things in terms of the world? No. They never will until they get saved. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit lives in them, and all of a sudden, there's this understanding more of the spiritual applications that, we, that they're going to encounter. But you've got to remember, when you talk to the lost person and you say, don't you understand, they're going to tell you, no, I don't understand. Ken Ham talks a lot about that with creationism. You know, it's plain to see. No, it's not. It, this is plain to see. No, it's not. <laughs> you know, we, we are talking different languages most of the time. And we need to be careful because it can be frustrating. You know, just think about this. If you've ever had to deal with somebody that doesn't speak English for us, you know, they don't speak English. They're a visitor to the America and they don't speak English. And how frustrating can it be trying to, number one, figure out what they want? Or, like in the prison when I have to deal with some of the Spanish people, you know, to give instructions and they're looking at me like, I have no clue what you're talking about. And, you know, this is what happens when we as, as spiritual people deal with the world. We say something that means everything to us and they don't, they don't hear. They do not hear, do not understand. Probably don't want to, but they don't understand. And we need to keep in mind there's a communication problem when we're dealing with the lost world. They don't understand, and we need to make sure we're being as clear as we possibly can when we talk about spiritual things. And we get caught up, and it's easy when you're so used to things to speak in what is called jargon, the words that mean something to you. And Christians use them all the time. You need to be saved. What the heck is you know? What do I need to be saved from? You now we know what we mean by that. You know, God shows His grace. Okay, uh, grace. You know, somebody somebody is you know very graceful. They move around real nice. Uh, you know, that's the thing we say that some people say before they eat, and we're going, no, it's God's grace where He gives you everything you don't deserve. You know, we need to be careful when we use these words. Sometimes Christians don't even understand these words. 
when, when, uh, when you're first saved and people start talking about justification and sanctification and glorification and, and mercy and, and grace and some, some people have been around churches all their life, they learn, they learn kind of how to use the word but never really know what it means. And you know, we have this problem called pride. Very few people will actually say, excuse me, I would, do you please define that word for me? I don't know what that word means. And it becomes pretty obvious if you listen to somebody long enough and they start using the word wrong. You know, one of my great examples is grace and mercy. Most Christians use them interchangeably as if they're the same word. And we've talked many times, they're exactly opposite. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting everything you don't deserve. Very different words and you can't be switching them back and forth. Now they're very similar but yet they're very different in their meaning. So we need to be careful. Make sure we're understood when we're speaking and make sure we make it as simple as possible. Verse says, but their minds were blinded till this day remains the same veil untaken from the reading of the word and which Christ has done away with. The Jews even to this day do not see Jesus in the Old Testament. They just don't. Born in Bethlehem, and it says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, that he will be called a Nazarite, which they automatically decide is, you know, the Nazarite vow and not from somebody who lived in Nazareth. Uh, that he would, that the children would be killed. You know, everything about the prophecies of Jesus and his first coming are absolutely true, but because they have a veil. They expect their Messiah to build their kingdom. They do not see Jesus as their Messiah. They have a veil. They have certain expectations of what was supposed to happen. Now, we as Christians can have the same problems. Sometimes we get so stuck on something that we start reading the scriptures in a certain way. Uh, I've got a lot of people that are, that are extreme Calvinists and they believe that you cannot get saved unless God has foreordained you to be saved. And you know what? There are a lot of verses that teach that. And they will, you know, and, I, and I've talked with many of them, and I'm going, okay, I understand what you're saying. I understand all the verses you're, you're quoting, and yes, I understand that God ordains and he ordains and he pre, you know, but what do you do with all these whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved? And their answer is inevitably, whosoever is called who is predestined, I'm going, no, you can't add your doctrine into the verse. Okay, if your doctrine doesn't hold up to the verse, you've got a problem. Now, the other side of the coin are all those people who say, oh, we absolutely have free will. Okay, now how do you read this verse that says God has foreordained and, and predestined? Well, you know, he, know, he knows who's going to. No, don't, you, again, you cannot read your doctrine into the verse. You have to take it for what it says. What the answer is, I've been struggling with it for over 40 years, and I still don't know fully how God can preordain and we can have free will and God says there's no problem with it. I don't understand it. It's, it's hard to understand, but I know what, God is a lot smarter than I am. He can figure out why it's both true. And I do believe part of it is he knew our decisions, but it's not completely because he knew our decisions, because if that was the case, he's not sovereign. God is going to do what he wants done. And we need to be careful with our, what we look at. And we need to be careful when we look at the scriptures and say, God, I've got to let your scriptures talk. 
And we may not ever understand everything about the Bible because there is a book written by God in an infinite God with infinite knowledge gives us things that are very hard to understand. And we've got to understand that if the Bible was a book that we could fully understand, it'd be a human book. It wouldn't be a God book. There are things in the Bible we're not going to understand because it is a God book. He wrote the information. And so can we learn more and more as we go along? Yes, we're going to get more and more. We're going to understand more and more. We're never going to understand the whole of the book. And I personally believe that even in heaven we're not going to understand the whole, the whole of things because we are never going to be God. God is always going to be greater than we, we are. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and I believe that is always going to be true. Because if we could get to his thoughts and into his way of thinking, we would become God, and we're never going to become God. We will be forever learning for all of eternity, we will be learning more about God and the depth of the infinite wisdom and knowledge of God. He, he will spend all of eternity teaching us, and we will never get there because his knowledge and wisdom is infinite. Okay? So we will never get there. Now, 20, 20 trillion years from now, we might have a closer <laughs> understanding of him, but he's still infinite. We will never get to where we fully understand God. Even after spending long time in eternity because there's no end of it. <laughs> we will never get to fully know him. He will always be greater than we are. He'll always be smarter than we are. There will always be things that, we, that he knows that we don't. And even if he ran out of things, he'd just create more things to, to, to teach us. <laughs> and, but he's not going to run out of things. But even if he did, he'd just create something and say, here, I've got something new to teach you. Uh, and it says that veil has stayed on even to this day when Moses is read, the veil is on their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. And this is what we're talking about. When we come to Christ, the veil is taken off and the Spirit can guide us through his word. Now the Spirit, the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is liberty. And remember, we have discussed the word liberty. Liberty literally means we have the freedom to do what we should, not what we want. Okay? When people read liberty, they think, well, I can do anything. Yes, but liberty has a restriction on it, a restriction that we still have to do the right. When, and I, again, I don't know if it's true of others, but I know in the Navy they always talked about taking liberty, which meant they get to get off the ship and go, go ashore. They have the freedom to do anything they want on shore as long as it doesn't bring disgrace to the uniform. Okay? They can do anything. They can go anywhere they want as long as they don't disgrace the uniform. Okay? They have freedom to do, but they have to do what is right. We have the freedom to do anything. In Christ, we have the freedom to do anything but he's also saying, you're at liberty. You're not to disgrace my name. Which means that we're bound by the laws in certain, in certain ways. We, you know, and Paul says we have the liberty to eat food offered to idols. 
Now, that may not be the right thing to do if you're in certain situations, but you know, go, go to the market, go buy the meat that was offered to Zeus, because it was just a rock that they offered it to, so it did, or a gold statue, it didn't matter to him. He says, go ahead and eat it, but if it offends a brother, don't do it. Your liberty stops where it offends a brother. Uh, you know, if you had the freedom to drink alcohol, don't do it in front of somebody who's going to be offended because you had the, the freedom to do something. And Paul brings this up frequently about liberty. You know, and why, how can we offend people? We can do offending real easy. You know, somebody says, well, I can, I can go out and buy this food offered to the idol. And the other guy goes, well, you know, I just, I just became a Christian. I used to worship that. I have trouble eating the, the, the meat offered to that, that idol because I realized that it was just a stone. But to me, there's still something wrong with eating that. And what ends up happening is judgment can happen on both sides. The mature person who says it's just a just a rock I can eat it says, well, you're just some you know you're weak you know you're you know when you grow up you'll finally figure out. And the other person judges them for doing something that they think is wrong, or even worse, consumes the food, thinking that it's wrong and commits sin because they've changed and did something that they did not have liberty to do. And we need to be very careful when we're dealing, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time and, and you're around a weak, you know, newer Christian, and say, I want to just love this person. I won't do this. If it's going to offend them, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to draw that. As a pastor, number one, I wouldn't drink anyway, but as a pastor, I'm not going to go out and drink because there are people that look at it and say, well, pastor can do it. I can do it. Now, pastor has no problem with it. I'm just going to go out and drink too, even though they have big problems with it. Now, again, I don't have any desire. I watch my parents and my grandparents have problems with alcohol, and I don't want to ever touch the stuff. But, but that's me. You know, if somebody, if somebody has the freedom to drink, it's between them and God. You know, uh, now, if they're getting drunk all the night, now we've got a different problem because getting drunk definitely says God says don't do. But if they're just drinking alcohol, it's between them and God. And you know, we have liberty, the freedom to do whatever God gives us the freedom to do. And I heard somebody talk about this the other day, and somebody goes, well, can I do such and such? And the pastor says, if you're asking me the question, the answer is no, because you don't have the confidence that you can. And that's quite a, quite a statement. You know, People will all the time, how close to, the, to this uh, sin can I get before I've committed the sin? You know, number one, that's the wrong answer. You know, the wrong question in the first place. If it is sin, you should be wanting to stay as far away from it as possible. Now, focus on the family. They had a purity series where they taught the teenagers. And they, one of their stories was that you know, they had this series of nights. And they were trying to find the best night to be the protector of the, of the princess. And they, they go, and they come up on a cliff, and they go, okay, all right, knights, how close will you let the princess go? And most of them would walk her really close to it. And this one guy goes, I'm her protector. I want to keep her as far away from the, you know, the, the cliff as possible. Well, who'd they pick to be her protector? <laughs> the one that says, I don't want her to get anywhere near the chance of falling. And the idea was, of course, you know, falling, in, you know, falling into sin. How close can I get to sin before I've crossed the line? Well, why do you even want to flirt with sin? But that is our mentality. Where is that point where I finally cross the line, God? 
And God's saying, well, I really want you to stay 500 miles away from the sin, not, not three inches away from the sin and, and you know, sliding, sliding across it by accident. God's saying, stay away from it. Stay completely away from it. You know, we look at somebody like Daniel. Daniel had political enemies that could find no charge against him. You know, and you know, we go, well, boy, they didn't do their job very well. No, he was that pure. You know, political enemies will find some dirt on you. If there's any dirt, they will find it. And if they don't find it, they'll make it up. Just as Daniel's accusers did. They, made, they had a law put together that would, they knew that Daniel would fail, that law. So we want to be careful. How far should we stay from sin? As far as possible. Whatever that sin is, we need to stay as far away from it as possible to not fall for it. And in the last verse on this, and I love this one, but all we with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed from, into the same image from glory to glory, even as the spirit of the Lord. When we're his child, we look into his glory and we are changed. From glory to glory, he's changing me. And this is what I talk about. You know, I use the term that we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. We are, we are in, our, in our flesh, in, our, in, our, flesh, in our, our own life, we are dumped into the Holy Spirit, and he just endues us and changes us. Very much, and I use the picture of the pickle. You stick the cucumber or the carrot or whatever you're pickle, uh, putting into the, into the vinegar, and that uh, vegetable does nothing to become a pickle except stay in the vinegar. And granted, you can't jump out of it, but the point is we are, we are pushed into the Holy Spirit, submerged into the Holy Spirit. We will become spiritual just because we are in the Holy Spirit. He indwells us, and he will change us from glory to glory. Each transition will be a deeper transition because he indwells us and he changes us. How easy is it to walk the Christian life? As long as you just let the Holy Spirit indwell you, it's really easy. You know, and this is one of the things I love. There are things that I don't do today that I haven't purposed not to do. I just kind of realize I haven't done it. I kind of look back and go, you know, I used to do that all the time, and now I don't do it at all. You know, I used to listen to this or watch this or read this or say this or act this way. And there was no conscious thought in my mind of changing. Now, there are things that I've consciously thought of changing, but there are other things that I just look back and those are when you get that amazement when somebody does something that you would have just exploded at last year and you go, I wasn't bothered about it at all. You know, I barely noticed that they, they, that would have irritated me a year ago or I would have done this or I would have said this. And it's not because we sit there and say, all right, flesh, I'm going to beat you into submission that the Holy Spirit has endued us with his, with his presence and said, you're going to be more like me. We become more like God with each passing day if we're his child. Why? Because he changes us. Just being in him will change us. And this is the wonderful thing about being a Christian. It is really easy to be a Christian if we just surrender to God and say, God change me. Now, I can fight it, I can, I can argue with it, I can, I can beat up, I can make a problem with it, but God says, I'm going to change you. If you're just my child, 
I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. He's going to wrap up your flesh, and your flesh is going to change. And that's the wonderful glory of God. We're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we ask that you be with us. Change us from glory to glory, from one good thing into a better thing with each change because your Holy Spirit indwells in us. Lord, make us all pickles in you. And we just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.